Okay, so I'm going to read from Mark 14, verses 32 to 42. Um, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass, pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now spring is upon us, he says, looking at the people with their coats on, because it's spring in England. When it comes to spring and when it comes to Easter, here are some things that you might be thinking about. You might be thinking about lamb on Easter Sunday, if you've got deep pockets, you might be thinking about daffodils springing up or uh, crocuses dipping their head or snowdrops peeking out. You might be thinking about Gardener's World that returns on Friday at 8pm on BBC Two. You might be thinking about spring or Easter bonnets and just a lightness in your spirit that normally comes at this time of year. It might be less hope-filled than previous springs because of the events of recent weeks. When it comes to Easter, Christians are serious about Easter. We're serious about Easter and we're serious about the joy that comes through the life-giving death of King Jesus. We're serious about the events of a Good Friday. That is not an oxymoron. We believe the death of Jesus is good news for a lost world. But Good Friday is only Good Friday because of Easter Sunday and we want to give a uh, credence to the fact that we believe that the life-giving death of Jesus, Good Friday, must always be kept together with the resurrection life of King Jesus on Easter Sunday. So the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrection of the anointed King, Jesus Christ, must be kept together. And that is why Easter is good news. And that is why we want to look at that over the next seven weeks. We want to live in light of the resurrection for another 70 years, if God spares us and on into the future. But Easter is seriously good news. Easter is not just about the Easter bonnet, if you're into that thing. It's not just about the Easter bunny, which I believe is nonsense. But when it comes to the Easter narrative, the Easter story, the Easter accounts, you might be thinking, well, isn't the Easter bunny as relevant to us as Jesus? Because Jesus is also a fable. Jesus is also made up. I want to disprove that to you this morning and say a few other things from Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Here's the first thing that this very precious passage has to say to us. Mark is in the business of showing us that the cross of Jesus Christ really happened. The cross of Jesus Christ really happened. The cross of Jesus Christ is not equivalent to the fun that can be had with the Easter bunny. And Mark shows us that from these verses, verse 32 to 42 of Mark chapter 14, what do I mean? 
Well, you might be thinking, well, the Easter Bunny is about as uh, relevant to us and historically true with the fables that are found in the Bible. And uh, Mark wants to dispel that because the Bible is not a legend. The Bible is historically rich and true. The person of Jesus Christ is real. He is a man of flesh and blood and he is a man of history and all of history. And how do we get that from this passage? Well, look at how his death is spoken about in verses 33 to 36. Some very raw emotions from the lips of Jesus that were heard and that Mark records for us. Now, the way the death of Jesus that's about to happen is spoken about from the lips of Jesus is absolutely unique. How do we know that the Bible is true? We look for one of the evidence bases at the death of King Jesus. What do I mean? Well, you could go to the British Museum, and I encourage you to do so one day, and you could look up or just Google it. That's mostly helpful, not always true, fake news and all that. But when it comes to researching death of Greeks and Romans, if you look at historical figures like Socrates, they all died with a certain poise. They died looking death squarely in the eye and there's a coolness about their experience. Socrates, he, uh, he died by drinking hemlock and he was able to look death straight in the eye and he died with a certain serenity and peacefulness. So Greeks and Romans alike, they could look death in the eye and they could die with a certain sort of victorious smile upon their faces, that they were unfettered, no sweat falling from their brow. It didn't trouble them too much. You can go to Jewish culture, maybe look up 1st or 2nd Maccabees that's found in the intertestamental period, that time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can read it in a book called the Apocrypha. And you can look at Jewish people and they they didn't look death in the eye with a coolness but we've got records that you can look at from the apocrypha that intertestamental period 400 years between old and new testament and they didn't have a coolness they were able to look at death with courage and they could say death you will not defeat me and there was heroic attitude to death so greek romans they had a coolness to death you've got jewish people and they looked at death with courage. You're not going to defeat me. And they puffed out their chests, men and women alike. And then you have Jesus. He's just about to die. And Mark records for us what Jesus said from his lips as we get a window into his open heart, so to speak. And look at how Jesus struggles with death. There's agony. He's agonizing over what's just about to happen. Jesus is afraid of death the way a so-called Jewish or Greek or Roman person was not afraid of death. Look at verse 35. Jesus is wrestling with his father from his heart and he says, to paraphrase, is there any way I can get out of the mission that you sent me on? Is there any way that this mission can be avoided? Now remember the question, can the Bible be trusted? How do we know the Bible is true? We look at the death of Jesus. Look at verses 33 to 34. Jesus is at this place called Gethsemane. He's praying and yet he opens up his heart and Jesus Christ, I say this respectfully, starts to fall apart. Look how Jesus describes his emotions. Two things to note, verse 33. Jesus began to be deeply distressed. Now that's a word that means astonished. 
And let's just remember who we're talking about. Jesus saw something and it stunned him. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was amazed or astonished or stunned at something. Now we're jumping into the middle of a gospel here. Well, towards the end, Jesus Christ has been revealed to us from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, as the Messiah. Jesus, the long-awaited anointed king. His power and authority over sickness and death as he calls people, as he heals people. Nature is stilled at his authoritative word. Death, death is just sleep to him as he raises a little girl. Demons are nothing to him. They bow at his feet and worship him and plead for forgiveness and mercy. In other words, the authority of Jesus is unrivaled as much as it's unmatched. And the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel say, this is who the person of Jesus is. And then chapter eight, there's a hinge in the whole book to say, and this is why he's come. Nothing has stopped Jesus in his tracks. He has spiritual core strength like no one who has walked the earth before. Nothing has kept, uh, caught him off guard until now. Verse 33, Jesus becomes deeply distressed. He is astonished at something. Second word from verse 33. Three. He's deeply distressed and now he is troubled. There is something horrific that Jesus can see and it distresses him in a way we'll never truly understand. Now, I read this in a book this week. I think it's helpful to share. I want you to imagine that you're walking down Epsom High Street. We won't think about this too long. You turn a corner, a blind corner that you cannot see around, and in front of you on the floor, there is someone you love deeply, that you know intimately, someone from your family, and they've been brutally murdered. And you're sick to the core. And everything in your world just stops. And anxiety and dread just dwells up in your heart that you cannot say a word. Don't think about that anymore. But that moment, as you thought about it, that gives you some sense of what the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, thought about and saw in his heart. He was deeply distressed and he was overcome with horror. He was choked, as it were, with dread. Verse 34. Jesus actually comes out and says how he's feeling. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Remember what we're thinking? How do you know the Bible is true? Well, think about this. If you're in the first century and you're writing a record like, the, like Mark was and Matthew and Luke and John have done as well, if you're recording the death of your leader, would you record a death like this? Would you not record that Jesus looked death in the eye and he was victorious and triumphant and everyone should follow in his footsteps? No one defeated death like Jesus. Would you not record a narrative like that? The only reason you record your spiritual leader, the king of the whole world, facing death in this way as if it actually happened. And it did. Jesus saw something as he knows he's on the eve of his death and it crushed his spirit, it crushed his heart. The only possible explanation for verses 32 to 42 being here in the Bible is as if it actually happened and it did. That's why Mark concludes it 
in his gospel account. So the question is, if this actually happened, if Jesus is not equivalent to the Easter Bunny, the Easter Bunny is fiction that Jesus and his historical nature is fact, why has Mark recorded it for us? That's the second thing I want us to think about. Mark, Mark in recording it in this way, is helping us not just to understand the death of Jesus, but he's helping us to understand and appreciate the wrath of God. Now, why do I say that? Look, there are many accounts throughout uh, the history books, Christian and non-Christian alike, where the death of men and women are recorded. But the purpose for this being recorded is very different. You've got people, Christians in the, in the first century, who faced the mouth of lions, who, who were defeated in horrible ways, who were used as human candles by Emperor Nero, and so on. They faced death more calmly than Jesus. Think of Polycarp. Polycarp, who's on the screen, is the, the Bishop of Smyrna. He's an early Christian leader, if you've never heard of him. He led a, a church, uh, a number of churches, and he wrote to encourage Christians. There's a super children's book that you can see on the right-hand side of the screen. That there's a super film that's been released recently. But he's brought before the magistrate, and, and the lips of Polycarp are speaking and testifying to the greatness of King Jesus and the sufficiency of God. But the magistrate said something like this. It was recorded for us. He says, I'll give you one more chance, Polycarp. Just reject Christianity, because if you don't reject Jesus as your king, if you do not say that Caesar is king, that Caesar is, is Lord, you will be burned in fire. That's the choice from the magistrate. Renounce your faith or face the fire of justice in this world. And Polycarp essentially said this, the fire you speak of lasts but an hour and is quenched with a little water. But what you do not know is of the fire of judgment to come. So why delay? Do what you will. I will not renounce my faith to King Jesus. So here you have someone, even a Christian, who's looking death in the eye and they're saying, I will trust God. He is sufficient to me. In Christ alone my hope is found, would be on his lips 2,000 years before it was written. So what is Jesus facing that is different from the martyrs? Verse 33, it says something began. Did you notice that? There is some experience that's beginning in the person of Jesus Christ. That it's that that is overwhelming him. Nothing surprised Jesus. And yet something is happening here that is astonishing the person of Jesus Christ. He actually is getting a foretaste of something he's about to experience on the cross in a way that's beyond physical death. And so he says, verse 36, at the very heart of the passage, Father, let this cup pass from me. I can't take the cup. I don't want the cup. Is there any way for me not to drink from the cup? So the question then becomes, what's the cup? What is it? All through the Hebrew Bible, through the Old Testament, we've got this metaphor, this picture language that's used to describe the cup of the wrath of God against all sin and all injustice. The justice of God will be poured out on all injustice in the world. It's there in Ezekiel chapter 23. You will drink a cup of wrath, large and deep, full of ruin and desolation, and you will tear at your breast or tear at your breast. Isaiah 51, you will drink the cup of his fury and you will stagger 
that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is astonished and is staggering and is deeply moved because he can see something, he can taste something. He's getting a foretaste of something called the cup of the wrath of God, where the injustice of God we poured out on all all the justice of God we poured out and all the injustice that's in the world. And think where Jesus came from, so to speak. Not just from Nazareth. Think of where Jesus came from in eternity past. Throughout all eternity, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, enjoyed life and love and light and delighted in the holy unity of the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. It's a, it's a dance one person to the other, enjoying one another, being satisfied with one another. And if that's what Jesus experienced, and if sin is a a deliberate turning away from the light and love and enjoyment of God as our Father and our loving ruler, and then if the justice of God is giving us what we deserve and long for, if we want to turn from God, then we will receive the justice of God at our sin and at our rebellion. Jesus began to experience that on our behalf and he staggered under the weight of it. And it's just a foretaste. And as it were, Jesus Christ is going weak at the knees. He's astonished and deeply troubled. Well, I have quite a problem with that, you may be thinking. I prefer to see of Jesus as a God of love and God as a God of love rather than God as a God of wrath. Let's just think about that just for two minutes. Friends, if you are loving, then you will be angry. If you've not been angry at the footage that the BBC and Sky and others have been putting on about the situation in Ukraine this week, then can I humbly say I don't think you're loving. Love will produce anger. The more loving you are, the more angry you'll get at certain things. When someone you love is destroying themselves or destroying other people, you get angry because you care. You get angry because you love. When there's pain in someone's heart or experience and you know them and love them, you will get angry and you care. and You want to get involved in trying to alleviate that situation. God is not loving, he is love. He defines what love is. He's a perfect representation of love. Love is in his very person, it's his heartbeat. And so he moves towards sinful people to rescue them rather than being repelled by them. God is perfect, he defines what love is, so he has to be angry and he's very angry at evil. He's very angry at injustice and so he has to do something about it. So God is loving and because of his love he is angry and wrath is an expression of right, proportionate, measured, controlled response to all that is unjust in the world and all that's against his loving and perfect rule. But the second thing is, if you don't believe in the God who is angry, a God who is wrathful, you have no idea of your value. A God without wrath doesn't need a cross. Just think there's a, a God over here a God who doesn't need a cross and a God who loves you just because you're you. And over here is the God of the Bible, the only God, who says there's something deeply wrong with you and the world and it's called sin, your deliberate rebellion against me. And it needs to be paid for because I'm a God of love and justice. But I love you so much 
I'm so determined to rescue you. I'm so determined to demonstrate my glory and my power and my might that I will rescue you no matter what the cost to myself. Can you see your value? More importantly, can you see the greatness of our God who is determined to do whatever it takes at no expense to his very self to rescue you? If you diminish the wrath of God, the controlled, settled, measured, appropriate response of a holy God to all that's wrong in the world, you diminish his glory. Come to grips with the wrath of God if you want to know God's hatred of sin, but also his great love for you. So says the Bible. Come to grips with the wrath of God if you want to know the glory of God and your value to him. But here's the third thing. It's not just the Bible is true. It's not just helps us to understand the wrath of God. Jesus models a way to deal with all suffering and our suffering too. Verse 36 again. Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. A friend of mine, Abby, sent me this book. Uh, I spilled coffee on it, so I had to buy it off her. She just lent it to me. But uh, I'm glad that I've got it. I've now passed it on to someone else. And there's a great quote from Elizabeth Elliot. It's on the screen. Suffering is either having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Now, that's huge. And so suffering, very helpful to think about the depth and the scope of that definition. Just read that again. Or put it another way. There is a gap between the desires of our hearts and the circumstances of your life. And when there's a gap between the desires of your heart and the circumstances of your life, that could be defined as suffering as well. Another way of saying what <coughs> Elizabeth Elliot says so helpfully. And what do you do when there's a gap? What do you do when you want to mine the gap from your experience, your situation, and the desires of your heart? Well, you need to do what you do when you get on a train, which is to mine the gap. It's very dangerous. There are two things we try and do. We try to change our circumstances. I'm in this situation, I'm in this relationship, I'm in this hardship, I'm facing this medical situation, and so I'm going to change my circumstances. But you can't. It's the very nature of it. Or secondly, you can try and uh, suppress your desires. I'm going to, I can't change the situation I'm in, I'm going to change my desires. I'm going to suppress my desires, and I'm going to try and manipulate them. But they're so strong, aren't they? The desires of our heart. Jesus presents a third way, another way. Look at how Jesus responds to the, the desires of his heart with the huge suffering that he sees just into the edge of. Look at what Jesus says in verse 36. He's not squelching or suppressing his desires. He is pouring out his heart. He says, I don't want this. Is there any way for this cup to go? But he's absolutely submitted to the will of his father. Look at what Jesus does as he's facing the cross of Christ. He puts his future into his Father's hands. He obeys for the love of the Father in the midst of suffering. Now how do you do that? Well, here's the power to do that. I mean, why? Why does God take Jesus to the very edge? Why does he enable him to see what the cross will cost him? There's a super sermon by a man called Jonathan Edwards called Christ's Agony. In Christ's Agony, he says these two sentences. God brought him to the mouth of the furnace 
furnace to his raging flame to see where he was going so that Jesus could voluntarily enter into it and bear it for us, knowing what it was. So when he took that cup on the cross, knowing fully what it was, so was his love to us infinitely the more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely the more perfect. God takes his son to the cross. He takes him to the edge of the cross. He's expecting and has enjoyed heaven for all of his life in eternity past. And instead he sees into the very depths of hell. And yet Jesus still obeys. And yet Jesus still moves forward. I know what it will cost me. I know the pain. I know the suffering. But I love you so much, Father. And I want to win for you a people that I will still go through with it. Now, why would Jesus do that? The passage before us, sentence 12 to 31, that teaches us about the Lord's Supper, about communion. In that passage, Jesus reveals himself as the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the substitute who takes away the sin of the world. What does the substitute do? It does something that you cannot do yourself. You're getting weary on a pitch playing netball. You're getting weary on a pitch playing hockey. And you, you say, I need a rest. And the manager just takes you off and puts someone with fresh legs. A poor illustration of the fact that Jesus does something that we couldn't do. We cannot save ourselves as hard as we try. And so God rescued us. It's interesting to think, isn't it, that Adam, our first father, came into a garden. And when he was in the garden, the Garden of Eden, God says, see the tree. That's one tree I do not want you to touch. I want you to obey me. And if you obey me, he says to the first Adam, you will live. And Adam chose not to do it. Ever since then, we've done exactly the same thing. This is the way of life. And in our heart, from the minute we enter into the world, we want to live in our world under our rule. And now the Apostle Paul comes in 1 Corinthians and talks about Jesus Christ, not as the first Adam, but as the second Adam. And as the second Adam, Jesus Christ is our substitute. He's our representative. And Jesus, in this passage, comes into a garden, a second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And God asks his son, Jesus, to obey him, the second Adam, about a second tree. But this is not a tree, it's a tree that's been made into a cross. And this is so much harder for the second Adam. The first Adam was told, obey me about the tree and you will live. The second Adam is told, obey me about the tree and you will die. The first Adam didn't obey, but the second Adam did. Obey me about the tree and you will bear my wrath for every sin. And Jesus said, not my will, but yours. He obeyed. Why did Jesus obey? Knowing your own heart? Why did Jesus obey? Because he had rather lose himself than to lose you. Jesus Christ obeyed his father. Jesus Christ obeyed the law. He deserves the blessing. But in the great mystery of the gospel, you get his blessing as he receives our curse. And he did that at infinite cost. When you see that, you will see in this passage and on the cross as we journey slowly towards it in the next seven weeks, you will see the love that you've been looking for all your life. It's the love you look for in a relationship the love you look for that no friend can give, not even a spouse. 
they'll let you down. Romantic love is just a pale imitation of it. It's a love that no professional aplomb or acclaim can give you. Nothing can satisfy you like this love. It's absolutely unique. All other loves will let you down. This love will not. The love of Jesus Christ. When you see that, you can trust the Father as you face suffering because you know that he loves you in the midst of suffering. If you're here this morning and you think, I feel like God has abandoned me because of what's happening in my life, friends, that's wrong. If he didn't abandon you under these circumstances, he will not abandon you. He will never abandon you now. Are you feeling guilty? I feel guilty about something in my life, something in my heart, something in my experience, something I should have done or something I wish I'd done. God, I think you've given up on me because, once again, if he did not give up on you as he saw into the very depths of hell, why will he give up on you today? Oh, there's people in my life who have failed me. If you knew the hurt that had been caused me, the fact that I've been let down, well, look at Jesus at the end of this passage, verse 37 through to 41, three times. He prays that his disciples, his, his inner circle, would stay with him to support him due to the overwhelming nature of what he's experiencing. And what do they say? He's totally let down. Jesus is totally abandoned three times. They fall asleep on him. And does Jesus say, I just can't stand you. You let me down at the time I need you the most. No, he speaks kindness, verse 38. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Even Jesus finds something good to say. Even at that time, I know you meant well. His heart for them is undeniable. And when you see that, Jesus doing that for them, also think about what he's doing for you now, when you let him down. He'll never let you down, and he still pleads for you before the Father. How can you give up on him? When he loves you this much, how can you give up on others? When this is the love of Christ that's modelled for us? When we see a love like this, we should do nothing more than fall down and adore him. And when you've adored him and praised him, then you can get up. And when you get up, you'll be just a little bit more like him.